This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. We've been talking about the spiritual gifts. We've been talking about a lot of subjects and they kind of kind of piece together like building blocks. And what I want to do is I want to stack these building blocks one on top of each other and kind of show you where we're going and show you why we're doing what we're doing and why the Lord is focusing on the things we're focusing on. I have been sharing with you for quite a while that I see, and you may disagree, but I see our nation as almost like Nazi Germany in 1933 and 1934. It is a very strange time in which we live. Would you not agree? We had all the debacle about the election, and we had the, the, the deal with the FBI and, and the court system, and we had the, the, the executive branch using its power to silence certain groups during the last administration. Then we had a really crazy election, and then out of nowhere, Donald Trump, a businessman, got elected president, kind of a populist president because of a groundswell of, of support, and, and it has been chaos ever since. It has been, it's been crazy. Uh, not only has there been rioting in cities, it seems that no matter what comes out of the uh, White House these days, somebody's going to disagree with it. And the amazing thing about it is, is the institutions of our society are beginning to take on the mantra, if you wear a hat that says, make America great again, or if you agree with anything that somebody we disagree with does, that we're going to banish you, we're going to flame you, we're going to do everything we can to destroy you. I don't know if you follow this, but um, Trump, of course, is a businessman. And since he became elected, he talked about lowering taxes. The stock market has risen to unprecedented heights. Businesses are pretty pleased with that. But inside businesses, Apple, IBM, General Motors, stuff of that nature, inside these businesses, they're having wars going on because a CEO says that I agree with the Trump policies because of his business stance. And the middle management are now having a groundswell of opposition against them. Tom Brady probably one of the greatest quarterbacks who ever lived, was warned, along with his coach Belichick, you need to distance yourself from the President of the United States if you want things to go well for you. Now this almost satanic kind of attack, this, this strange delusion that's going on, is centered on Trump, but it just takes moving the goalpost a little bit before it becomes centered on us. <clears throat> It's exactly what happened in Nazi Germany. You know, we didn't go after the Jews. We went after the gypsies. We went after the communists. And then all of a sudden, we just moved the goalpost a little bit. And the same thing that's happening in our nation. And you don't even have, there's not even a rule of law anymore. What happens to our, same thing happening in our nation happened in their nation. And, and you and I, whether you believe it or not, you and I are going to be the recipient 
of persecution. Why would we be exempt from that when Christians have been persecuted and are being persecuted all over the world? Is it because we're more righteous than they are? Hardly. If the fact is it's coming, and we've been talking about that, and, and for some reason we're kind of blind with it. In the church right now, we've got big divisions about whether or not a homosexuality is a sin or a lifestyle, whether or not the Bible means what it says or means what we want it to say. And if you'll go on Facebook, and again, I, I belong to hundreds of these pastor groups and stuff of that nature, just to kind of get a feel for what's going on in the church at large out there, it is, it is unbelievable chaos going on. If you stand for the Bible as it's written and what it says with a literal historical interpretation and hermeneutic, you will be maligned by church people, being maligned by other Christians because you're, you're a fundamentalist, you're a bigot, you're, you, you don't believe in the social gospel or the kingdom now gospel. Instead, you actually believe in his kingdom the way it's written. And I mean, our church right now, what we teach and what we preach will become very unpopular in Christian circles very soon. And other churches like that. The, the largest churches out there are not the ones that preach the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. They're ones that preach a gospel of accommodation. Have you not noticed that? So what's the Lord doing in our church? I have, um, I have heard from the Lord years ago about this. And one of the purposes of what we're trying to do here, to give you the big picture, is we're trying to prepare for the time when the church in America will become an underground church. The largest church, or the strongest churches in the world are not visible churches, they're the invisible churches, they're the underground churches. We have churches on every street corner and we stand for nothing. But the day will come, like it did in Nazi Germany, where you'll have to make a choice about who you're going to follow and, and what God you will serve, the God of the Bible or the God of this age. And what we've been focusing on here is trying to grow as deep as we can spiritually, as fast as we can spiritually, because we're not always going to live in the relative peace that we have right now. We focused on community. We encourage people to take vacations together. We try to have meals as often as we can together because that's the model in Acts chapter 1. And it's the way that we try to bond together, not as a building or an institution, but bond together as a family is what we're trying to focus on here because to do anything else means that when persecutions come, if there's nothing that holds us together other than a joint service that we attend once a week, maybe, for an hour and a half, there's not much to our relationships. True? Because that's why we're trying the best we can to, to intertwine. That's one of the reasons why I think our church is the size it is, as it is. We, we don't focus on programs here. How many programs do we have? None. Absolutely none. Because a church program is something that the leadership gets together. This is something we need to do. So we try to sell the congregation on the program to get them involved in our vision. It doesn't work that way. What we try to do here is if our church moves in a new direction, if our church takes on another ministry, that ministry doesn't come from me. That ministry comes from you. You say, you know, God is really leading me to do this. Hallelujah. We will rally around you and your ministry. So that if something happens to the institution here or the church or me or whatever, the ministry still survives. Make sense? We focus on the Bible rather than buildings. We meet in a barn. We've never had our own building. We rented a Seventh-day Adventist church 
for years. We met in the Pendergrass barn. We're meeting in this barn because it's, it's not about a building. It's not about having a marquee out front. But did you see the sign as you came in? Exactly. You know, it, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. The fact is it's, 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 about, it's about Scripture, and, and our devotion is not to First Baptist Church. Our devotion is supposed to be towards the Bible. It's about relationships that we have with each other and relationships that we have with the Lord. The reason why our church is named the Church Without Walls has nothing to do with the fact we meet in a building. I mean, meet in a barn. It has to do with the fact that we're trying to see in Scripture breaking down walls. We want to break down walls between each other. You know, there's no factions, no groups, no arguments, no fights. We, we want to break down walls between us and the outside world. We want to get our hands dirty when it comes to ministering to people. And we want to break down the walls between us and how the Holy Spirit is moving in our lives. The whole purpose of this section we've been talking about, about spiritual gifts, is for you and I to understand the gifts that God has given us and the, the validity of those gifts and to live and function in them for the benefit of others. Amen? I mean, this is what we're trying to do here. And the, the reason is the fact that things are not going to get better. Things are going to get worse. Turn to 2 Thessalonians, if you would. And let me just show you a couple verses here. Paul is talking to the church here of Thessalonica. He did not spend much time here, but actually about three weeks. And all of a sudden, he was driven out because of persecution. He's sending a letter back to them because they had had some false teaching that the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ, had already happened, and some of the people in their congregation had died, and they didn't understand what happened to them if it was true that the day of the Lord had come. And so Paul begins to lay out for us some principles here about, um, about what happens when Christ does come and what happens at the end of the age. Verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the parousia, and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or a word or a letter, as if from us, as though the day of the Lord had come. Satan had sent some counterfeit in there, whether it was a prophecy or whether it was a tongue or a vision or whatever it was, or some counterfeit letter saying, you guys are in trouble because the day of the Lord had come. Verse 3, now lo and deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. The falling away. That's the word we get apostasy from. And what the word means is to depart, to forsake. It's a defection. It's an apostasy. In order for the son of the perdition to come, there has to be a falling away from the true gospel. There has to be Christians in name only who follow the God of this world and not the God of Christ. They try to take the gospel and turn it into something that's palatable to them, have a form of godliness, but not any power. He says that day will not come until the falling away comes first. Watch. And then the man of law of sin is revealed the son of perdition. This man opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God on the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the abomination of desolation that takes place at the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel during the tribulation period. Paul had only been teaching them for three weeks and he says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? This is what you call serious Bible teaching. Three weeks. 
He didn't take him through what it means to be saved. And God has a wonderful plan for your life. And why don't you read like one verse of Proverbs and one verse of Psalm a day and that will satisfy you. He's not talking about that. Paul is infusing in them everything he could. So that's what's going to happen. Why isn't it happening now? Verse 6. And now you know what is restraining. That he may be revealed at his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. There's something that is restraining this darkness. There's something that is restraining this power of evil, this this antichrist, this son of perdition. And the word means to hold back, to detain, to hinder, to withhold. And the, the man of lawlessness will be held back and detained and hindered and withheld and restrained until the restrainer, that that is restraining him, it says, is taken out of the way. Verse number seven. We know what that is. It's the Holy Spirit that is withholding the power of darkness. And the Holy Spirit resides where? In us. And the only way the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way is when Christians are removed from the earth. And that happens at the rapture. And look what happens. As soon as that takes place, verse number 8, and then the lawlessness will be revealed. The word revealed is where we get the word apocalypse. It means to uncover, to lay open what has been veiled or covered up, to make manifest, to disclose, to make known what was before unknown. Once the restrainer is taken away, then the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will be revealed. And then it tells us the future of that person, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth as they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the singular lie. Now, what is that lie? The lie, of course, is the fact that the Antichrist is Christ. The lie, of course, is the fact that the miracles that he performs are godly miracles. And, and of course, we've got the two witnesses in the book of Revelation who testify against that. And these events are going to take place. Now, what we forget is this. As soon as the rapture takes place and we're gone, then the world based, then all of a sudden the Antichrist is revealed. The book of Revelation tells us that all the kings of the world of all different religions and nationalities and ethnic reasons and ethnic people, which seems impossible, will give their allegiance to one man. How could they do that? I mean, it seems like it happens in just a short amount of time. And the only way that would take place is if the world was in such chaos before the rapture took place and such turmoil, wars and rumors and wars and wars and all that kind of stuff, that they're looking for a savior. Which means those events, those horrific events that will basically make America no longer a world player because in order for Israel to make a treaty with the Antichrist, Israel's great protector has got to be a non-factor. It means us. There's a, there's a movement that takes place. And all of these things will take place prior to the rapture. It's not like, oh, it's okay. As soon as Hillary becomes president, I know God will rapture us out. No. I mean, he didn't, he's never done that. The fact of the matter is that 
you and I may face severe persecution. Our faith may be tested. That's what God does during every finding process. And are you ready? I mean, are you ready for this? Are you, are you spiritually strong enough? Do you understand your faith and your, your spiritual gifts? Can you stand in the face of, of turmoil like Christians have done for the last 2,000 years? My goal here is to prepare us for that. So that if all of a sudden church is outlawed on Sunday and they go by and they shut the door of every church, can they shut the door here? No, it's not a church. It's my barn. And we just gather together. See the difference? You know, and if all of a sudden they just banish any gathering that we have, it's okay. You and I are friends. We get together for lunch. We, our kids play with each other. We take vacations together. We're trying to make the church bigger and stronger and deeper than just coming to some neutral building each Sunday and fellowshipping with people there and then going our separate ways and not having any contact with anybody else. Make sense? Goal of what we're talking about here is that you and I need to live like we believe. We need to, if we claim to be a Christian, we need to understand those things that belong to us. We need to understand our position in Christ. Do you know who you are? Do you know what Christ has done for you? Do you not know that he chose you from eternity past in him before you even did anything good or bad? Romans 9 talks about that. He's placed his spirit in you. So no longer do we have to go to some building where the Shekinah glory falls behind the veil in the Holy of Holies where God meets with man at the Bema seat. All that's been ripped open. All that's been changed. We now have bold entrance into the throne of God to be able to pray and intercede, not through any agency of man, but just by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit as children of God and joint heirs of Christ. And that's who we are. No weapon formed against us will prevail. That the, the Lord were to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That in, in Ephesians chapter 3, it tells us that in a doxology that, that we can't even think or, or even speak or imagine the thing God wants to do for us through his church. That's who you are. I know, but I feel so depressed. I don't know things aren't going well. You're a child of the king. What does it matter? I mean, what does it matter that you don't get this job or this person doesn't like you or the, the loan didn't go through? I mean, it, it's all left behind anyway. It, it doesn't matter. When I was younger, those things ate me up. I'll be 62 next month. And you'll be surprised the perspective you get when you get older. All the stuff that I fretted about in my 20s and 30s mean nothing. All the stuff I fretted about in my 50s don't mean anything anymore. You know, it, it doesn't matter. Because you have perspective and you want to sit down with younger people and go, you know what? Trust me, it doesn't matter. Well, it does today. It won't tomorrow. You know what I mean? Life is, life is a gift he's given us. We need to understand who we are in his kingdom. I mean, we don't, we're, we're, we're earthly citizens of the, uh, this kingdom, but the fact is we are inhabitants of his kingdom. And his kingdom rules, as we've talked about as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, are different than this kingdom. In this kingdom, it's all about what I can collect. In his kingdom, it's what I can give away. In this kingdom, it's demanding my rights. In his kingdom, it's being last and sacrificing for others. You understand his sovereignty. God, I prayed about this, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and, and your answer is no. Yeah. I mean, if God wanted to change things, do you think you couldn't change them? 
course he could, but he chose not to change him. And so there's a reason for that. And his reason is not for my demise. His reason is for my betterment. And so the fact is, God, you are sovereign. You can do anything you want. You are God Almighty. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in his heavens. Do you remember the rest of it? And he does what he pleases. Okay, I can take my prayer request to the God who does what he pleases. And if he chooses to agree with what I ask for, hallelujah. If he chooses not to agree what I ask for, who's wrong? Me or him? Me. Okay, God, I got it. We need to understand the Holy Spirit. There's a Holy Spirit who lives here. It's a Holy Spirit who inhabits us. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the gifts. It's, it's the Holy Spirit that is moving and manifesting in our life right now. We need to understand the gifts he's been given us. And, and these gifts are not to be feared. And these gifts are not to say, well, none of those apply to us today because why? Because you don't have them? Because other people don't have them? Because they make us feel uncomfortable? So we just chuck a whole section of scripture out the window? How crazy is that? You understand if he's given us these gifts, what he expects us to do with them. We need to understand how the church functioned in the book of Acts, which is how it's going to function, I believe, in the future. Wouldn't you have loved to live in a book of Acts? Oh, my goodness. He, Peter gets up and he preaches this sermon, this 173-word sermon that's recorded. 3,000 people get saved, and they all devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine and teaching and fellowship and the breaking of bread and signs and wonder being done. Every day they met together in, in the same, in, in same houses together, and they, they broke bread with, and had fellowship with all, and even the lost people had favor with them, and guys were getting saved every single day. Do you remember? And then all of a sudden it goes from 3,000 to 5,000, then an innumerable amount of people under intense persecution. The early church gets together while Peter and John are in prison, and they're praying. What do we do? We hunker down in fear. We've got to get our attorneys together. No. We have to talk to the sovereign God who can do anything. Do you remember? Understand his wisdom whole purpose of the book that I wrote. How do we accumulate God's wisdom? We also need to understand the reality of this life and listen very carefully, especially those of you that are younger than me. This life is short. I mean, it is short. You don't notice that until you have children. It seems like when you're, when you're 12 years old, you want to be 18 years old and it takes forever. Know what I mean? Then when you're 18 years old and you get, you get out of the house or whatever it is and you go to college or, or, you know, did your job or whatever it is, you know, it takes forever to get to be 21. And then all of a sudden you get married and everything just rocks on. I've been married for three months, been married for six months, been married for a year. And then the baby comes. And then all of a sudden you have this yardstick in your own family. They celebrate, your baby celebrates his first birthday. You're a year older. Your baby's five years old. You're five years older. And all of a sudden your kids are grown. And it's like, what happened? I, I, I fell asleep and I woke up old. You know? True? Yes. You don't. Amen. A man is exactly my age to the day. The fact is, you don't realize that when you're young because it never gets there. But when you get older, life is short. And here's the one that will shake you up a little bit. It is relatively meaningless outside of Christ. No, no, I had a really good job. Well, what does that matter? I mean, really, what does that matter? No, I understand. I was, I was head of my department at IBM. Okay, and when you died, somebody else filled your desk. And what does it matter? I mean, you're just, you're just a memory. And, you know, I, I look at 
I look at the people that had a big impact on my life. They're gone. I mean, all they are are memories. All I have is pictures of them. Man, I remember that. I remember that was really great. And pretty soon I will die. And if I don't pass that on to my son or my, ch- or my daughters, th- that memory will be gone. We look at all the people that were really famous movie stars like Paul Newman and all those kind of guys. They're gone. I mean, they're gone. Life is relatively meaningless apart from Christ because everything we do on this life, we raised our family. What well, is great. We had a big house. I mean, that's fantastic. We had all these cars, took all these vacations. None of that goes with us in heaven except our, the people that we've ministered to. Through Christ, our children, if they're saved, that's it. We devote our entire life to, to building a name for ourselves in the secular world when it should be about our kids. Life is short. Life is relatively meaningless. And the Bible tells us life is to be lived for others, not for me. Do you like selfish people? Honestly, do you? We hate selfish people. Live life for them. Well, let's not be those kind of people. The Christian life is, and the church is, is the only institution ever created for the benefit of its non-members. The benefit of other people to, to learn what we've learned and what we know about Christ. And this life that you have especially the life with Christ, came at an incredible cost. An incredible cost. We need to to value that. The sacrifice that was made for us to to be who we are. And one of the key elements is we need to understand the power of prayer. You know, we, we we have this direct access to God, but we forget that that prayer is what undergirded the early church, undergirded the the church in Acts. I was going to take you through the book of Acts and just show you how prayer was so important there, but I'm sure you're familiar with this. I'm going to uh, to just encourage you to do that. Start at Acts chapter 1, verse 14, where the early church is getting together, devoting themselves to prayer. Acts chapter 2, after the sermon at Pentecost, we find the church devoting themselves to prayer. Acts chapter 3, the first miracle takes place as Peter and John are going to the temple at the time of prayer. Acts chapter 4, they've been told that they can't preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus Christ. And the early church was having a prayer meeting. Not like the prayer meetings we had, but they were having a prayer meeting like we're supposed to have. And all of a sudden, Peter and John came in and they told about the persecution that took place. And the whole house was shaken and they began to speak the word of God with boldness and incredible things took place. Do you remember that? You ever been in a prayer meeting like that? Those are people that were praying. That's the first corporate prayer meeting we have an account of in the book of Acts. And I think it's a prototype. If we understand the power of prayer, Acts chapter 6, verse 4, Peter and John and the other disciples say, look, we're not going to be involved with administrative tasks. We're going to devote ourselves to two things, the proclamation of the God, the word of God and prayer. Acts chapter 12 talks about that too. Acts chapter 13, before they sent out Paul and, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they devoted themselves to prayer and on and on and on. Take a look at these yourself. So we can understand prayer. Now, if I asked you the part of your spiritual life that you feel most deficient in, probably other than sharing your faith, it would be prayer. I feel pretty good about my Bible study because that's something I can do on my own and listen to a tape or a podcast or watch a sermon or study God's word. And when it comes to sharing my faith and especially prayer, most Christians, including myself, feel somewhat deficient. Well, I try to pray, but... 
Every time I do pray, it seems like my prayers just bounce off the ceiling. I try to pray, but it doesn't seem to really connect. And, and my prayer time seems kind of one-sided because I'm praying, I'm laying all my needs out to the Lord. Then I sit back and go, okay, we're done. I was talking to, to Jim Canoodler this week, and uh, I was saying as a man, most of us approach the Lord like uh, a boss. Excuse me. Uh, Lord, uh, can I come in and talk to you for a second? Sure. Come on in, Steve. Uh, listen, I really appreciate the job here. You're really, really a great boss. It's really fantastic that you hired me. Uh, you know, my Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, and on earth as it is in heaven. It's just great here. Thanks. But, but listen, I'm here today. I've shown up. I punched in. Any, anything you got for me to do? Yeah, here's your instructions. Thanks, got it. Okay, I'll satisfy you later. Out the door. Where's the intimacy? Where's the fellowshipping with his presence? Well, we just don't do that with a boss. I know, but the scripture never calls God our boss. He calls him our Abba Father. Know what I mean? And the scripture commands us two places to pray in the spirit. Especially as we're talking about spiritual gifts here. To pray in the Spirit. First one is Ephesians chapter 6. And this is what we're going to look at today. Take on a helmet of salvation and a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And what do we do with all the spiritual armor that I've just put on? Praying always. Okay. How do I pray always? With all prayer and supplication. How? In the Spirit. Not with the Spirit. But in the spirit, I'm to pray, it says, after I put on the spiritual armor to do my battle for, for God here with all prayer and supplication. It's my prayer, my adoration, my, my glorifying, my extolling the Lord and my supplication where I'm asking him my request. I'm, I'm, I'm telling him what my needs are and, and, and putting prayer requests before him. And I'm to do it in the spirit. Doesn't mean in tongues. That's something different we're going to look at. But I'm to do it in the Spirit. This is a capital S here. In the Holy Spirit. How, how does that work? We find the same phrase used in Jude. You, beloved. It's talking about building ourselves up in the faith. You, beloved. Building yourself up on the most holy faith. Well, how do I do that? Praying in the Spirit. Then it says to keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ until eternal life, on and on and on. I'm to pray all prayers at all times in prayer and supplication in the spirit. And here I build myself up in the most holy faith by praying in the spirit. What does that mean? We've looked at spiritual gifts. We've seen what they are, how the Holy Spirit moves in our life. But what does it mean to pray in the spirit? How do you do that? If you asked somebody today, they would say, well, that just means praying in tongues. It doesn't at all, period. It's not what it's talking about here because this is a capital S. And I'll show you where Paul talks about that in a few minutes. What does praying in the Spirit look like? And if I'm praying in the Spirit, what part of that prayer is mine? What is of my volition? What am I doing? And what is he doing? Because I'm praying in the Spirit. I'm not praying with the Spirit, which means we're praying together. I'm not praying of the Spirit. I'm not praying... In power, I'm praying in the Spirit. And so, like being in Christ, I obviously do some part and he does some part. And, and what's the distinction between that, those two things? And the only way to understand this is to look, look in Scripture and see that when it talks about making intercession for us, when someone is praying for us, we find in Scripture that Jesus is praying for us and we also find in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is also making intercession for us. 
Look at Romans chapter 8. You thought Romans chapter 8 was just the sovereignty of God chapter, but watch this. It says, likewise, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit also helps in our weakness. What weakness is that? It's not defined. What weakness do you have? Well, I, I, I'm struggling with my lust. I'm struggling with my apathy in prayer. I'm struggling with the fact that I don't have enough faith. I'm struggling with, that's your weakness. But the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For when we don't know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself, it's not my action here, but this Holy Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groans which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart and knows what the mind of the Spirit is, why? Because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. First principle here is when it comes to whoever members of the Godhead make intercession to the Father for us, that the Holy Spirit is one of those. Agreed? But look what it says here just a few verses later. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit here now. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, and what is he doing there, who also makes intercession for us. When I'm getting ready to pray and I want to pray in the Spirit, I realize that I have Christ at the right hand of the Father constantly making intercession for us as my advocate, as my paraclete, we're going to look at in just a second, you know, counter, counteracting Satan's accusations at the Father, but that's, that's taking place in heaven. But I also know right here in me, since I don't know how to pray as I ought because my mind is, is, is confused, because I'm filled with weakness, that the Holy Spirit himself makes intercession for us. That God the Father, Jesus making intercession at the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit inside of me and inside of you making intercession for us also. They're both making intercession. And there's a principle that you'll notice as you study Scripture, especially as you look at the Trinity, that there is never a duplication of ministries inside the Trinity. God is very economical. What the Father does, the Son doesn't duplicate. What the Holy Spirit does, the Son doesn't do. Why would the, why would the Son do what the Holy Spirit does if the Holy Spirit, there's no need for Him to do that when it comes to redemption? You know, the Father prepared redemption. The Son acquired redemption. The Holy Spirit applies redemption. The Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross from you, neither did the Father. The Son did. See what I'm saying? You will find that, that there's never a duplication of activities in the Godhead. Therefore, if the scripture says that they're both making intercession for us, that the Holy Spirit is making intercession for us, and Jesus is making intercession for us, they have to be somewhat different or distinct. They cannot really be the same. Jesus' intercession for us is based on something different than the Holy Spirit. Because the scripture says that we are to pray in the Spirit, not pray in the Son, not pray in the Father. Make sense so far? Okay. Watch this. This is amazing. When Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit, the first time he mentioned it, he told him that he was going to send another one just like him. Do you remember the passage we went over and over again in the book of John? And I will pray to the Father, Jesus says, and he, the Father, will give you another. And that word is alos. It's another of the same kind. He will give you another helper. And that word is parakletos, where we get the word paraclete. It's a very hard word to define in the Greek. So a lot of English translations right now don't even try to define it. They just basically transliterate it and put the word paraclete in there. He will give you the paraclete and make you look it up. 
But the fact is, he will give you another helper, another comforter, another advocate, another intercessor. He will give you another helper that he will abide with you forever. And he tells us that other helper is the spirit of truth, is the Holy Spirit. I've shared this with you before, what Jesus is saying. It's better for you that I go to the Father. Because if I go to the Father, I will send you someone else. Just like me. I will send you another helper. Like I've been for you, he will be for you. Only he won't be confined to time and space like I am. If I'm at Capernaum, I'm not in the Sea of Galilee. I'm not in Jerusalem. If you want to be where I am, you have to be where I'm at physically. But the Holy Spirit will come. He will abide in all of you. Paul talked about it as the mystery of the Old Testament, now revealed in the New Testament, that he will abide in all of you and not be confined to time and space. So it's better for us that we carry around with us Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit, another one just like him, rather than having to go where he is. Make sense? We become tabernacles and sanctuaries of his spirit. But the word parakletos here, which is applied to the Holy Spirit, also applies to Christ. In 1 John 2, 1, it says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, what do we do? We have an advocate, same word, a comforter, a helper with, with the Father. And who is that? Jesus Christ, the righteous. So as Jesus Christ was an advocate for the Father, interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, he sends us the Holy Spirit, another helper just like him, Alos, another helper who also intercedes for us, who is also our paraclete, our parakletos. And here's what the word means. It means one who is called to one side and to one's aid. Did Jesus do that to his disciples? Holy Spirit does it for you. One who pleads another cause before a judge, an intercessor. Did Jesus do that for you? So does the Holy Spirit. He is a helper, an advocate, a counselor. I will send you another intercessor, another, another counselor, another helper, another one that comes alongside, just like I've been for you, because I am going up to the Father, where I have a permanent place at His right hand until I come again in glory, and I will ever be interceding for you, just as the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, is also interceding for us. Two types of intercession that take place. And the Scripture tells us to pray in the Spirit, to pray in the Spirit's intercession, not in Christ's intercession, because they're totally different. Let me give you a couple differences here. One is the location. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father, according to Romans chapter 8, and he's an advocate with the Father in 1 John 2. The Holy Spirit intercedes from the hearts of you and I. He intercedes from the hearts of men. One is positional, one actually lives within us. We also have the type of intercession that takes place. You know, uh, and when it comes to Christ at the Father, there's nothing you or I can do to hinder his intercession. Do you realize that? His intercession is not based on our devotion to him. His intercession is based on the completed work that he's already done. He's already died. He's already raised. He's already ascended. And based on that position and his completed work, not what you and I have yet to do or haven't done or will do, he makes intercession for us. There's nothing we can do to avoid that intercession. Hallelujah. But it's not the same way with the Holy Spirit. 
because we can hinder the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes intercession for us when we make intercession. We can, we can have unconfessed sin in our life. We can cooperate with the Holy Spirit and not cooperate with the Holy Spirit. I can pray just with my mind, just the things that I want, and I lay them all out, and when it's done, I'm tired. Or I can let the Holy Spirit pray with me. We can incorporate, or I can, I can cooperate with him as he's praying for me in, 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 in a way that only he can do. And all of a sudden, my prayer times become, time, become the, the kind of times that wild horses couldn't drag me away from versus praying in the flesh, praying in the flesh that wild horses can't drag me to. Make sense? Now listen. Listen, there's a teaching out there, and it's a... It's, it's a rejection of, of excesses in the, in the um, charismatic movement that says God never speaks to anyone outside of his word. That if someone says God told me this, that they're wrong. But none of that is true. God never speaks contrary to his word, but he does speak to you personally, does he not? And if he doesn't, how sad, how sad that Jesus had an intimate face-to-face relationship with his disciples. They had a need. They asked him. He responded. They had a question. He gave him an answer. They, they needed something from him. He provided for them. And he says, look, it's better for you. It's better for your relationship with God and with me if I'm gone because I'm going to send you someone that you can't do that with anymore. That you have to just go through some archaic scrolls and try to figure out what, what the implication is here. How is that? I mean, that's crazy. But since we're so afraid of a dialogue with the Lord, because maybe I'm losing my mind, maybe that's kind of crazy, maybe people think I'm weird, or maybe I'll be some charismatic kind of guy, that we chuck all that out the window and we hamstring what God wants to do in our life. I remember a long time ago, I read the autobiography of Jerry Falwell. I think he died in like 2007. A man that, whether you agreed with his politics or not, was a man mightily moved from God by God. And he had just finished seminary, and he was getting ready to come home, and uh, he was offered two positions to minister at. One was an established church down in Macon, Georgia, and his mother said, hey, there's about 20 of us that are getting together at this old orange juice factory in Lynchburg, Virginia. We're trying to start a church. Wonder if you'd like to come, maybe consider being a pastor. I have two choices here. I go to the Bible, and I read Ezekiel and Jeremiah. That doesn't tell me, God, I have to, which church should I take? Should I take the one in, in Macon or should I take the one in, in Lynchburg, Virginia, this kind of startup church? And, and I don't really know. You know, the biblical principles, I can serve you either way. There, there's, I, I don't know. But, but, but God's not going to give him an answer? And God gave him the most incredible answer that I've used a thousand times in counseling. What God said to Jerry Falwell was this. You choose, I'll bless it. So Jerry Falwell chose the church in Macon. That's what I'm going to do. Nice, good, fleshly choice. They had a salary and everything. But before I go down there and begin that pastor, I'm going to go home for a couple of weeks and just preach at my mom's church. And God, he stayed. And the rest is history. And began the Thomas Road Baptist Church, which was the road that that orange juice factory was on the building they met in. God speaks to us. He we can pray and, and the Holy Spirit will reveal things to us if we cooperate with him. Do you understand the difference? Watch this. Again, back to Romans 8. <clears throat> For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
I'm crying out to God the Father, Papa, Daddy, Father. It's an intimate relationship. It's not a business relationship. It's a father-son, father-child, father-daughter relationship. And when I cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy, look what happens. Then the Spirit himself, that's his actions, not mine. The Spirit himself bears witness with, not witness to my spirit, yes, what you're doing is godly, but bears witness, uh, witness along with me, with my spirit, that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I pray, Abba, Father, in the spirit, and when I pray, the spirit then bears witness with that prayer, with, um, uh, with our spirit, that we are children of God. He communicates that with, I am praying and the Holy Spirit is praying. Holy Spirit and human spirit become joint witnesses by the cry that comes for us. We do the crying, that's our part, and the Holy Spirit does the inspiration of that cry, the meaning of that cry. It's the Holy Spirit that connects us to the Father. I'm just crying out, Abba Father, Abba Father, Abba Father. Debbie, can you say Abba Father? Okay. Is that flesh or spirit? I'm a father, I'm a father, nothing happening. It's just my head, I'm just making some words up. But if I pray that and I'm cooperating with the spirit, then he himself comes in and takes that and then puts the power behind that to have me pray in the spirit. Have the spirit pray through me and with me. And it is, if you've never experienced, it's a life-changing thing. You, you pray and, and you just feel like you're at the throne of God and I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. The, the Lord, what are we doing here? That's, that's the normal Christian life. That's normal prayer. That's the way it should be done. This is the beginning of the understanding of what it means to, to pray in the Spirit. Well, is it my action or his actions? Which one is it? That's both. And praying in the Spirit and praying with the Spirit are not the same thing. Praying in the Spirit is what we're talking about. Praying with the Spirit is something that... that Paul talks about, about praying in tongues. And the only time we find in Scripture praying with the Spirit is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that we talked about last week. What is the conclusion then? Paul says, I, my action, will pray with, not in, but I'm going to pray with my Spirit. And the translators of our Bible understand that Spirit is not the Holy Spirit. It's His human Spirit, therefore it's a capital S. I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I, my action, will sing how with, not in the Spirit, but with my human Spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. And the whole context here is praying with the Spirit and in the Spirit are not the same thing. You talk to a charismatic. Well, I'll pray in the Spirit. How? Well, and they pray in tongues. No, that's praying with the Spirit. That's praying with your Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is something God energizes. That's available to every single one of us. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For I do not know, this is cognitive understanding, what we should pray for as we ought. And since I don't know what I'm supposed to pray for, and I'm, I'm stuck in this weakness of not knowing what to pray for, the Spirit himself, his actions, makes intercession for us. He's praying for me with groans which cannot be uttered. Well, I have a real hard time with that. 
And sometimes I pray in the Spirit, and sometimes I don't pray in the Spirit. And sometimes my mind gets in the way, and sometimes I, I, I don't know, I'm so burdened by my problem that, that my prayers don't even seem to have wings. And sometimes I feel like God has shut heaven up, and sometimes it just doesn't work. Well, you're a good company, because the Apostle Paul struggled with the same thing. Watch this verse, Romans 8, um, 8.26 again. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. Paul didn't say your weakness. He didn't say this never touches me, never happens to me. I've evolved to a higher spiritual plane. Paul is saying, I feel you, I understand you. I got the same struggles you do. For we, including Paul, do not know what we, including Paul, should pray for as we, including Paul, ought. So Paul says, when that happens to me, as it happens to me and probably you, he says, but the Spirit himself, his actions, makes intercession for us, including Paul, with groans which cannot be uttered. I'm telling you, it's not, it's not until you confess and recognize your weakness when it comes to prayer that you will lean on the Holy Spirit and he will pray through you. I mean, the, one of the major principles in Paul's life is the fact that he says that when I am weak, then I am strong. When I yield myself and confess my sins and my shortcomings and confess my inadequacies, then I allow the Holy Spirit to fill the void in my life and everything changes. As long as I try to do everything in my own strength, God goes, no need for me here. But when I realize that I am nothing and everything that I have is his, then all of a sudden something incredible happens. I'll give you an example. How do we reconcile the fact that we don't always know the Lord's will in a particular situation? but we are required to pray according to his will. I go to the hospital, and there's a 93-year-old woman who is bedridden and blind, who has a very bad lung infection, and she's a sold-out believer in Jesus Christ, but her life on earth is pretty much tragic, and she's looking forward to dying and going to heaven, and she's laying in the hospital, and I'm supposed to come and pray for her healing. I have no idea what God's will is in that situation. I know what my will would be, God, I mean, just glory on the other side. I mean, just this incredible thing. She wants to go be with you, but the family says, no, pray for the healing because we want her back even if she's bedridden and blind just for another couple days or weeks or a month because we just can't bear with the thought of giving her up. Well, what's God's will in this situation? I don't know. I don't, do you know? I don't know. So what we do is we tag on to the end of it. We pray what we want. Lord, if it be your will, heal her. And if it's not your will, take her home. What kind of prayer is that? You know, I mean, what, what, what's your, where's your faith at, Steve? You're supposed to believe in faith. What are you believing for? Well, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not believing for really anything because I'm just kind of hedging my bet here. So whatever happens, I can say, well, it's God's will. Try to comfort the family. You ever been there? What do we do? I don't know, God, what your will is. I, I don't know what it is in that situation. Lord, my prayers are weak because of that. How does that work? Back to Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. God, I have no idea what your will is in this situation. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought or what the Lord's will is in a particular situation. God, I don't know. Well, who does know? God, who lives in me. God knows. I don't know, but God knows. I may have a preference. I may have a desire, but as far as God's will, only God knows, and God is living in me and living in you. And all I do is I let him overcome my weakness and let him make intercessions according to the will of God. Has that, has that ever happened to you? I mean, it's, 
wonderful when that happens. You're filled with such peace, no matter what the situation is, because the Holy Spirit in you has prayed with you and you've incorporated or cooperated with the Holy Spirit. So you're praying in the Spirit and you truly are praying the will of God. And the scripture says, if we pray his will, that we always know we're going to get an answer, right? Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we don't know what we should pray as we ought. But the Spirit himself, his action, makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. How about this one? What happens when we get our faith begins to wane? You know, I know, Lord, that this is your will, and, and, and you know, I've, I, I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed, and nothing happens. I, I got a lost husband or a lost wife. I got wayward kids. And, and I believe you're going to bring him back, and I believe the promise you gave to me, and I believe what your word says, and, and I believe all that kind of stuff. But the more I pray for them, and the more I, I share Christ with them, and the more I anguish with them, and to the, to the point that I'm, I'm just weeping to the point of exhaustion, the more I do that, the worse they get. And it seems like the more that I try, the, the harder it is. And they're running further away from Christ. It'd probably be better, God, if I didn't do anything because maybe they would come back. And I, 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 don't, I don't have any faith. I don't believe anymore. I don't know what's going to happen. God, increase my faith. That's a weakness. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know how we should pray in faith as we ought, but the Spirit himself, his actions makes intercessions for us in faith with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now listen, I know if this is new to you, this is something that you may have never experienced before. And it's a truth in Scripture that if you will begin to trust the Lord with your prayer life, that you will find amazing things take place. Again, the two passages. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. We have no problem putting on our spiritual armor every day and praying always with all prayer and supplication, not in the flesh. The difference between the Spirit is flesh. Not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication of the saints. And as you study to build yourself up in the most holy faith, you do that by praying in the Holy Spirit and keeping yourself in the love of the agape of God. I want to encourage you. Go home and get some quiet time. And um, it's an uninterrupted time. I, uh, my wife's been gone since, uh, I feel kind of bad. My wife's been gone since Tuesday. And her life is absolutely chaos right now with all the kids she's watching. And my life is really quiet. Um, you know, um, Haley's been gone a lot, and I've had the house to myself and haven't really gone anywhere, and I haven't been able to spend some really quality time with the Lord. And I call Karen, and we're kind of Skyping on the phone, and I say, how's your day been? You had any quiet time with the Lord? No. It's been crazy. I said, I, said, I miss you. I can't wait to hurry up and get home. Has your life been rough? No, actually, it's been pretty good, but it has, no, it has, has nothing to do with the fact that you're not here. You know, it has to do with the fact that I, I, you know, I had this forced quiet time on me. And it has, been, it has been great. Do that. Take some, take some time. But don't just give God 15 minutes. What kind of friend does that to another friend? You know, give him at least as long as you would sit in front of television and watch a movie. Give him an hour and a half, two hours. Just close the door. And whatever posture you feel comfortable. 
on your knees, on the floor, just sitting in a chair, standing up, whatever it is, and just talk to him. Lord, I, I only know how to pray with my mind. I only know how to pray with my head. I only know what to pray for, the things that I cognitively can think about. And, but Lord, there's so many other things that I don't know. and There's so many weaknesses I have. And you know what? I want to yield myself to you. I want you to, I want you to do what your word says, Lord. I want you to pray through me. I want you to pray with me. I want, I want to pray in the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, and, and begin praying. And it doesn't mean that you're praying in tongues or something like that. It, it means that all of a sudden, God will reveal things to you and His will in certain things that you had no clue of before. And He will have a conversation with you. He will speak to you. And you will, wow, was, it, was that me? Or did God really just speak to me? Well, I don't know. Did what He say apply to your situation? Well, yes. Did what he say agree with scripture? Well, yes. Did what he say glorify you? Well, no. Did what he say glorifies him? Yes. Pretty good indication it probably came from him. Because Satan's not going to teach you, say, have you say anything that glorifies him? And if it's your flesh talking, it usually glorifies you. Know what I mean? And just learn. Learn what it means to, to really be a child of his, to, to come up and sit in your papa's lap and just hold on to him. I never understood the Abba Father thing, never, because um, my father was any, anything than the kind of person I would ever trust with anything. Um, didn't believe him, couldn't trust him, scarred me. I became a father, and I began to understand a little bit more of what the father thing is all about. But, you know, I'm, I'm a man, and I have agendas, and I know what I'm really like on the inside. So, I, again, I, I still had a, kind of a hard time relating to that until I had grandchildren. And there's nothing you won't do for your grandchildren. Have you ever noticed? Nothing. And then when your kids sit in your lap, your grandkids sit in your lap, and they look up at you, and they go, hey, Papa, and put their arms around you. Man, that's how I want to be with God. That's what, that's what I want to be. You know, and Jesus said, if I, being evil, know how to give good gifts to my grandkids, my kids, how much more will the Heavenly Father give, and as Luke account says, the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him to pray in the Spirit? It's part of your inheritance and heritage in him. Don't be afraid of it. Embrace it because the day will come when you're going to need to have, you're going to need to have wings on your prayers that will usher you right into the throne of God. You know, if, if uh, Donald Trump invited me to come to the White House, um, He's giving me that authority to come. That's really great. Thank you very much. There's some great king does. So I show up at the front door, and I'm standing there, and I'm, uh, I don't know where to go. I mean, they, they say, well, what are you doing here? No, I got a pass. The president wants to see me. Okay, but I don't know. I don't know what room I'm in. I don't know where I'm at. I don't even know where to go. I'm not going to go just knock on doors. And then somebody comes up to me and says, yes, I'm to take you to the president. And he simply says, follow me. And we make it through the corridors and up the stairs and through the doors and all that kind of stuff. And the badge that I have given to me by Donald Trump gives me access and all of a sudden takes me to the White House. We open the door and I have, you know, a conversation with the president or with the king. I mean, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit does for us in our relationship with Christ. Christ provided direct access to the Father, but it's the Holy Spirit who takes us there. It's the Holy Spirit who, who guides us in this. It's the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Spend some time fellowshipping with Him and praying with Him. And I think, as with me, your life will never be the same. Amen? Let me pray.